Welcome to Conversations in Process, hosted by Jay McDaniel and co-sponsored by the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. These conversations explore a way of understanding and living in the world that emphasizes the continual becoming and fundamental interconnectedness of all things. But they're also intended to provide an ongoing interaction in which the stories, insights, and wisdom of each conversation partner can expand your horizon and enrich your journey and process. In this conversation, Jay is joined by Sherry Kling, an educator, speaker, and dream worker interested in spiritual and cultural renewal through psychological and spiritual practices, ecological worldviews, and liberating theologies that foster wholeness and flourishing. In her work, Sherry draws from multiple disciplines, including religion, theology, psychology, ecological studies, mystical spirituality, and the arts to communicate ideas and practices that positively impact human flourishing, especially related to meaning, purpose, healthy spirituality, and spiritual practice for psychological integration and transformation. She is the author of the recently published A Process Spirituality, Christian and Transreligious Resources for Transformation. Sherry is also a singer-songwriter, guitarist, recording artist, and during this conversation, she graciously agreed to share one of her favorite songs with us, The Homemaking Nearness of God. Well, Sherry Kling, it is so good to have you today with us, with me. Thanks, I've admired you. I've admired you for a long time. I remember the first time we met, um, it was the music that drew us together. I mean, right. we, we talked a little process philosophy, but then I discovered that you played the guitar and are a musician. And so I gravitated toward that. And you sang for me. I think we sang a couple together. Yeah, we did a little jam and, session. Yeah. And, and I didn't realize at that time that you also had such an interest in uh, spirituality in general and Carl Jung in particular. Yes. And now I know that. And <laughs> I think this is a time for, for us to explore those connections and whoever's listening in gets to, gets to listen in and learn with me. So let's not beat around the bush. Um, can you tell me a little bit, did you grow up in a Christian setting? Did you grow up as a Christian? Was, is that I, part of I your- did. I did, I did. We, we were uh, Lutheran. And so I was a regular churchgoer my whole life. So how does a nice Lutheran <laughs> get interested in the psychology and the depths of uh, Carl Jung? Can you tell me a little bit about that story? Yeah, well, so for me, I um, I was, uh, had had some, some things in my early life that were, that were difficult and traumatic. And, you know, like we all, most of us have issues in our family. And so I had some of those issues. And so um, in my early 20s, I, I recognized that that there were things in my life that were not going well. And I needed to, to explore that side, the psychological and emotional side of my life. And so for me, that, that journey, which started in my early 20s, was uh, just always kind of interwoven with my spiritual journey. They always went together. And so it was probably, I'm thinking it was in the early 90s, whenever, whenever the book came out called Women Who Run With the Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who is a Jungian analyst, that book came out and I got it and it, it changed my life. It, it was so significant, the way that she talked about stories, fairy tales and myths as patterns of psychological development and I saw myself in those patterns. And when, when that happened, it just opened up a whole new world for me because in the stories, you know, in the ancient stories, and this is true for biblical stories, it's true for the, the Greek myths and the other, other myths that we've come to learn about through our various uh, readings and studies, those stories where the, the, the main character goes through difficulty never end in the darkness. They always end with some kind of rejuvenation, rebirth, transformation. And so they putting myself and being able to see the patterns in my own life in the context of those stories um, 
allowed me to see my life not as just a series of random acts of suffering, but as part of a larger story. And that gave me a lot of hope. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I think of Jung, um, sometimes I, I quickly think of dreams, mm -hmm. and the role that dreams can play in, in helping us find some kind of integration. The, the, what you just told me was being attracted to the stories and that of archetypes and, and um, that, that you learn about, that you read about, maybe you see in movies these days or whatever, people can. Were you also attentive to dreams? Was that a part of your life early on or did that come later? I think it, it, it wasn't a part of my life early on. I think it came about probably through um, working with a therapist somewhere along the way who suggested that I start to write down dreams. Um, and even before I became familiar with Jung and, and Jungian psychology. And so, you know, someone was helpful to me to suggest that. But then once, um, once, that st once I started doing that and once I got into the, the Jungian writers, then I was doing a combination of things. You know, Robert Johnson, who, who passed away a few couple of years ago, not real long ago, has a wonderful book called Inner Work. And so there's a lot of guidelines in that book about how to do inner work. And, and, and the, basically the reason to do inner work, I'll just say quickly, is, is to go through what Jung called the process of individuation. And I'll, I'll come back maybe a little bit later to how Jung talked about the psyche and, and the way the, the psyche compensates for our conscious attitudes by bringing us unconscious material to balance us out, right? And so um, this process of individuation is a process where you bring up unconscious material, your shadow material that needs integration. The, the kinds of things that are kind of running the show behind the scenes that you're unaware of that often cause us to repeat um, patterns that are, that are bad for our lives, right? And so, um, so in that process of individuation, you know, some of the tools that are really helpful are looking at your dreams, doing dream work. Uh, I was using journaling. That's not necessarily a Jungian thing, but I was using a lot of journaling. And then also Jung talked about synchronicities and synchronicities are those meaningful coincidences that happen in our lives that reflect where the, our inner world is reflected in the outer world and is connected through meaning. And he thought that that was, he didn't ever think that that was a causal relationship. In other words, our inner psyche didn't cause those outer experiences to happen. What he said, and this is also very um, resonant with Whitehead's thought, that the world is full of meaning. It's just value-soaked and meaning-soaked inherently. And sometimes that, that meaning can be the connection between an inner event and an outer event. And those are synchronicities. And if we pay attention to those, again, we can begin to see where our unconscious is helping us to move toward wholeness, more wholeness and transformation. Um, that makes so much sense and, and um, gives all of us a lot to think about. So if you assume that the people listening right now uh, know just a little or maybe nothing about Jung, can you name some additional ideas in Jung that you have found helpful and that you kind of half wish everybody knew? <laughs> there, there are a lot, um, but you know, so many of his ideas, and I'm not gonna be able to list them all, but so many of his ideas have become part of our common vocabulary. And we don't, many of us don't even realize that they come from Jung. So Jung talked about the way that he understood the psyche. And so he, he was, um, he worked with Freud um, and, you know, in the early 1900s, Jung was working with Freud. He was really Freud's kind of protege. And um, they had a split uh, over some key areas of disagreement. And so Jung went then on his own and developed what he called analytical psychology. And so his idea of the psyche was that the psyche is made up of different parts, that there's the, the conscious psyche, the personal conscious psyche, what we're aware of, what we focus on, what we know about ourselves. Then there's a personal unconscious that is made up of what is unknown about ourselves, but that which comes out of our personal experience. 
And sometimes, you know, the things that we don't want to own about ourselves, they could be things we don't, characteristics we don't want to, don't want to own that we have, or even good things that we aren't willing to let ourselves have, right? Um, but what was really key is that Jung theorized that there was a collective unconscious that was kind of the repository of all of human experience, and that that collective unconscious um, is what was responsible for the symbols and images that arose in, in across cultures in various myths and stories, and also what came up in our dreams. And um, of course, we've heard, we've all heard the term ar archetype that comes from Jung. Um, and it was because he saw these images and patterns arising across cultures that he theorized that there were these archetypes that were kind of like forms that um, arose that were that were part of the human experience because they were, you know, throughout time inherited and in, inherited by us in today, you know, as we as we are born. And so these archetypes are patterns that influence us. They're, they're, they're uh, patterns around which images are collected that then become meaningful to us. And so um, again, this is the collective un unconscious. There's, um, has this, this compensatory relationship. Our unconscious has a compensatory relationship with our conscious mind. So in other words, Jung, said that the psyche has this kind of innate system that when our conscious mind, our conscious ego gets out of balance, like if, for example, if we become too perfectionistic, the unconscious will bring up something that will balance that out. In other words, we'll do something that will show the world how imperfect we actually are. And so that is a way for our psyche to get back in balance and be in kind of a more of a homeostasis sort of um, status. And, um, and the way that the unconscious brings up that material is through images, because the unconscious does not have, you know, language in the sense that we use language and conceptual language that we use with words. So the unconscious throws up these images, and, and those images can arise in dreams, they can arise just in our uh, reverie and, and, you know, daydreaming. So there's uh, many paths through which that material comes up. But Jung talked about that if we don't work with that material, if we don't, um, if the unconscious is giving us material and we don't, we ignore it, we don't work with it, it'll come back to us as illness or fate. Uh, Ill, what was the illness or what? What was the? Or, or fate. Fate. What happens to us? Right. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Sherry, from a union perspective or from your own, are we all already involved in a, in a process of individuation? Or is that something that only happens if we consciously enter into it? It's, a, it's something that uh, it is always happening um, because there's what, what young believed is that there was a pattern of wholeness in the psyche that he called the self with a capital S. He said that's the God image in the psyche. And that, um, that is the place where the transpersonal energies, the divine energies intersect with our human individual energies. And that pattern of wholeness was always drawing us toward this growth and development, he, Jung was very concerned about people becoming too much of what he called a mass man, um, conforming too much to the state is really what he said. So this, you know, he wrote a lot of this back um, around the time of the great wars. And so he thought we had, people were called to this journey to express their highest potential and what their possibilities were. And so this, this pattern of wholeness in the psyche would lure us toward those potentials. And um, 
was the, the, the way in which these images arose in us that we needed to work with. And so, um, so I, though what, what is important is that um, when you're conscious of that and consciously walking that journey and aware that it's happening, it's just, you're able to bring, make more of that material, bring it into conscious awareness and therefore integrate it. He, uh, a key part of Jung's thinking was this, what he, he said, psychic energy is created by the tension of opposing forces in the psyche, the tension of the opposites. And boy, this is a huge, this is a huge learning we could embrace as a society in the U.S. right now. The worst thing that he said you can do when you're in the place of that tension of opposing forces, and we feel it in our personal lives all the time. It might be that we feel, for example, there was a part of, there's a time in my own life where I was drawn, really drawn to two different men, right? Like I really felt interested in this man, but then there was someone from my past that I still felt really connected to. And um, our tendency is to want to repress one side of that because it's so uncomfortable to be pulled apart like that. It really feels like we're being pulled apart. And we're so uncomfortable with that. We just want to repress one side of that tension. But Jung said, no, you can't, you can't do that. That's the worst thing to do because then you push it down into the shadow. What instead we need to do is hold that tension. He said, hold the tension of the opposites. And what happens, there's a function in the psyche that he called the transcendent function, which is when you allow and you hold that tension and you refuse to split, that then a, a new way, a third, arises out of that tension that is a way forward that, in, that does not repress or discard either side, but integrates both, includes and integrates and goes beyond. And boy, if that's not something we need right now, well, as, as I hear you, Sherry, um, I hear a lot of process theology, uh, but it's called Jung. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of, of something inside us by which we're beckoned into wholeness in a continuous way. Um, uh, the idea that, that the many be can become one and be increased by one, that something new can happen in us and around right. us if we embrace the many rather than hiding from the many. Uh, all of that sounds like process theology and somewhere along the lines you discovered process theology, I take it. Uh, yeah. Can you tell me, tell us that story and, and how all that fits together? Sure. Um, so back in the mid nineties, I um, became um, a member of an organization called the Institute of Noetic Sciences. I had heard about them. I had, and then I went to a, a conference they had. And so I became real interested in what they were doing. And they're an organization based in California that studies consciousness and healing and energy and energy medicine, you know, all kinds of great things. And um, I read a book by one of their fellows named Christian De Quincey. And the book was called Radical Nature. And in that book, he talked about the idea that consciousness goes all the way down, that there's consciousness in everything all the way down, even to rocks and minerals and things like that. So, um, so I read that book and in it, he references Whitehead and says, and talks about process philosophy and process theology. So that was in the back of my mind as something I knew I wanted to learn more about. And when I, when I went back to school in 2009 to get my master's degree, um, when I was looking at different, different schools to go to, I was always looking, do they have any courses on process theology? Because I want to look at that. And, um, and so I ended up going to the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. And I, I did an emphasis there in religion and science. And um, LSTC, which is nobody, did, didn't actually have a course in process theology, but McCormick Seminary, which was next door, which was the Presbyterian Seminary, has a wonderful theologian there named Anna Case Winters and, and her class, I took her class in process theology. And so in that class, and I was, you know, very interested in it from the 
from the beginning. I loved what we were reading. One of the books we used was the introduction, the very well-known introduction to process theology by John Cobb and David Griffin. And as I was reading that book, when I got to the chapter on Christology, where they talked about Christ as creative transformation, I thought to myself, well, this is just like Jungian individuation. And I started seeing, you know, some resonances between Whitehead and, and Jung and um, or process thought and Jungian thought. And that got me started on a research uh research path that I, that I never departed from. And, um, I, you know, I did a paper for that class on resonances between Whitehead and Young and, and in the process of my research discovered the book Archetypal Process, which edited by David Ray Griffin, which was published in 1990 after a conference was, that was held at Claremont School of Theology, Claremont, it was probably with uh, Claremont Graduate University as well, I'm guessing, where James Hillman, um, an archetypal psychologist influenced greatly by Jung, came and talked with process thinkers. So they had Jungians and process thinkers in dialogue. And when I found that book, it was, it was like, oh my God, it's not just me that sees this. And I got very excited. And, um, and then did my master's thesis on these two schools of thought and came to Claremont as a PhD student working with Philip Clayton you know, just knew, knowing that that was where my work was going to be. And so then I did my dissertation on, on that. And, here, you know, and here we are today. So published a book just recently uh, on that research. And I still love it. I never got tired of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, I know Hillman's writings also. And, and I'm a fan of Hillman's as well. And it's my impression, and Sherry, if I'm wrong, just, just let me know, that Hillman um, invited people to recognize the richness of a polytheistic consciousness. And so uh, one of the brilliant features of Hillman was to open up the minds of those of us who overemphasized um, oneness and, and unity at the expense of manyness and variety and multiplicity. Mm -hmm. um, uh, which takes me then to the question of, of God, uh, and in particular, uh, God in, in process philosophy and process theology. Uh, first, can you just say a word about the links that you have discovered or developed between a, a process understanding of God and Jungian thought? And then if you could speak a little bit to the question of um, multiplicity and a variety of images uh, or however God is understood. So first and foremost, uh, how about God and Jung? Well, you know, there's a there's well, there's a lot of interesting, a uh, lot of interesting ways their paths kind of cross. Both um, both Whitehead and Jung had clergy in their families. I, I'm pretty sure, and. Um, and, and both also really felt that religion needed to be uh, self-critical and willing to evolve. Um, they, both Whitehead and Young really uh, rejected some of the core ideas of the modern worldview. So they both just, you know, rejected the mechanistic doctrine of nature. They, they uh, rejected sensate empiricism, you know, that everything was just what we could learn through the senses. They also rejected the denial of any divine presence or influence in the world. Um, and so the three, the three main things that I focus on in my book that I, that I say, because basically the, the core theme of my book is that, um, is that we are, especially in the U.S., in a very fragmented state. And that state of fragmentation is at the societal level, at the interpersonal level, and at the intrapersonal level. At all levels, we are just fragmented. And I put the blame of a, for a lot of that on this worldview that we hold in the West that is dualistic, materialistic, mechanistic, that that is pulling us apart along with 
some of the other kind of political realities we live within. And so um, we are in this fragmented state and it's, you know, look at our politics, look at racism, look at the uh, loneliness we have in our culture, look at the the increasing use of antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications. The evidence is just astounding that we have this fragmentation. What I say is that that with Whitehead and Young, we have access to resources that are very integrating. So Whitehead at the level of the cosmos and Young at the level of the psyche talk about an integrating reality that moves us toward wholeness and transformation. And so what I what I also say is that at, you know, in both of those systems, they, they paint reality at both of those levels as one in which there is value inherent, there is relationality inherent, and there is transformation inherent. And so what that means is that we matter, we belong, and we can experience positive change. And those three, uh, three things are then able to be experienced in our own lives in a very deep way through a practice like dream work. That we can, in, we, when we do dream work as a spiritual practice, that we can then see and experience for ourselves that these things are true about the cosmos and the psyche. So, um, so of course, you know, you look at the idea of God, um, both Whitehead and Jung talk about that we meet, we can encounter this other at the, for Whitehead, the beginnings of experience, for Jung, the depths of experience. That human experience at its very bottom, we encounter an other that is uh, like Jung talked about the objective psyche. Whitehead talks about causal efficacy and that the, the world itself um, is the past world itself enters into each thing as it arises. Whitehead also talked about God being present in each thing as it arises, as that living immediacy that causes it to arise and also the possibilities that, that God is offering that thing as it arises, right, to actualize. Um, Jung talks about that we encounter the, these, this, uh, this, the divine through this, uh, this archetypal self in the psyche, that that's the God image in the psyche, and that, that we, um, in the collective unconscious, encounter this, this objective psyche that is other to us. And so, um, now, you know, we might ask, well, does that mean that Jung thought the collective unconscious is God? And he wouldn't ever say that. You know, he, he was a scientist. He was very empirical, interested in empirical study. He was just observing what he was seeing in his clients as he worked with them, you know, in their uh, times together. And so he would say, he would not say that the collective unconscious is God but he said that they're empirically indistinguishable in the psyche. And it, famously, the BBC in an interview asked Jung if he believed in God. And he said, I don't believe in God. I know that God exists. And I, I always love, love that. We, he knew, I, you know, we know, we can know that God exists because we encounter that God. Yeah. So uh, can, can God, um, I take it God would be something like either as the psyche or as what Whitehead means by the lure, something like a whole-making um, presence within us and around us. Yes. Uh, is this whole-making um, reality also in the natural world? Yes. Yes, I absolutely believe that it is. That it's, again, when we uh, think about how how we arise, how persons, things arise in the world, that uh, from a process perspective, there are um, novel possibilities 
available in every moment, yeah, no matter what our circumstances, right? They're, they're always relevant to our situation. So like I always say that I can't tomorrow, I can't say tomorrow I'm gonna start practicing as a brain surgeon just because I think that's a really fun idea. You know, that's not a, that's not a possibility I can actually actualize tomorrow. Now, tomorrow, if I, not that I'm going to go back to school at this point, but tomorrow I could decide, hey, I'm going to send an application into a medical school, right? That, that is a, a possibility that I can actualize tomorrow. But um, so in every moment, there are relevant possibilities, according to, to Whitehead, that arise with that moment that we, and we have the agency to choose, right? To, uh, to pursue, to actualize those possibilities that are available to us. And, um, and so I do think that it is part of, it is just universally part of the way things work, that there are always these possibilities for um, change and growth. You know, of course, Whitehead talked about novelty and order, that there is always order. So the past, you know, we, the past is present in the, in the, in the present. And we, we always have that choice to just repeat the past, you know, just like psychologically, we always have that choice to just continue to behave according to our complexes, which is another Jungian term, to, you know, those entrenched patterns of behavior that have been with us a long time, we can just keep living that way. But boy, it gets more often, it gets more and more uncomfortable to live that way. And we start to wonder, I can't, I can't continue to do this. I can't continue. What is happening? Why, how can I change this? And then those possibilities will, will come. So uh, a little earlier, I talked about uh, manyness and, and oneness. And one, one, um, one thing I have in mind there is so many people today, uh, for so many people, the word God is, is not available to them because it, it, it simply suggests um, an overriding authority um, makes them feel guilty or permits and causes, at least permits all the pain. Um, it doesn't cause it. And so they can experience the divine, but they might not be able to name it as God. But they might find other images, um, uh, air, water, sister, brother, Coyote. Right. That would be their image into that homemaking nearness. And I know you use the, the phrase homemaking nearness of God. And I find that beautiful. And I've actually um, heard you sing a song. Yes. That uses that phrase. So would it be all right if I ask you to sing that for us? Yes. Now? I would love to. I'm going to. Uh change my position here so I don't know if my camera is going to love that but we will we will see if that will still work I'm going to get my guitar yeah so I um one of the things that I do on a regular basis is work with the Hayden Institute which is um a center in Asheville North Carolina that that has certification programs and spiritual direction and stuff like that they also have a wonderful conference every year and so I spoke at the summer, it's called the Summer Dream and Spirituality Conference. And I spoke there um, in, in May of 2019 and did a talk called The Whole Making Nearness of God, and I, I, uh, where I was talking about Whitehead and Jung. And I also brought in a little bit of Richard Rohr because I had just finished reading his book, The Universal Christ, which I really, really loved. And that's obviously another loaded term. We don't have to get into discussion around whether or not Rohr's usage of that term is going to appeal to everyone. But I was weaving those ideas together in this talk. And then before I did the talk, like really just a week before, I wrote this song. So I am going to play that for you now. The whole making nearness of God. sacred is near we're interconnected so what shall we fear in each forming moment god's new will appear the whole making nearness of god we cannot carry 
the glory or shame. We cannot heal all the pain in our name. Living in Christ trades compassion for blame. The whole making nearness of God. Even within all the suffering we know, God's possibilities yearning to grow. Grace, creativity comes in the flow, the whole making nearness of God. Let it flow. of this interview um, to consist of you singing <laughs> <laughs> and us listening. Um, in the interest of time, I won't ask that, but I, I would love to hear you in concert. I would love that. And one, one thing that we're interested in at the Cobb Institute is how um, process theology can be communicated right. uh, to, to a broader world um, in service to what is good and beautiful and kind and wondrous. And you know, it's been very abstract process theology. So our, our language mm -hmm. has been so abstract. So sometimes I think if somebody says, would you introduce me to process theology? I say, yes, listen to this song by Sherry Kling. <laughs> there there right. you go, that's it. I, I know that you have found um, process theology very, very helpful, but you also think it's it's inadequate if presented solely in conceptual terms. Right. Would you say a word about that? Yeah. So, you know, it's it's um I think that what I loved about putting together uh Whitehead and Young is that they bring something to each other that the other lacks. Um, and even with dream work as well. And so, you know, white Whitehead and process thought can tend to be really rational and very conceptual. And um, to that, Jungian thought brings this imaginal depth, these, the image the, and the emotion and the uh, aesthetic piece of that, that was so important. Aesthetics are so important to Whitehead, but often the language, you know, there's a part in archetypal process where um, David Griffin says something like, um, uh, you know, process thinkers sometimes want to think, oh, you know, people don't understand us, but we're, it's, we're just throwing pearls before swine. And, and Griffin says, you know, no, we're giving people stones and not bread. And we need to give them something that they can digest. And image and story helps us digest concepts. So Jungian thought brings that kind of imaginal piece that that process thought doesn't have on its own. And then, you know, to Jungian thought, Jung, you know, they, Jung talks about this transpersonal reality where there's this numinous other that we can encounter, but has no metaphysical framework to explain how that is actually possible. And so Whitehead's framework and understanding of metaphysics talks about how it is possible to encounter God at the depths of experience. <clears throat> and then, you know, uh, to, to the combination even of Whitehead and Young, um, you know, white, they, which gives us a way to think about novel possibilities and human individuation. Dream work then brings a practical method for discerning God's initial aims, right? Whitehead talks about those initial aims, those, those possibilities that God is luring us toward, but, but really 
I've never heard anybody in process theology tell us how we discern what those are. And even if those aims can be discerned at the level of the person, right, versus just at the level of the moment. And so, um, so dream work can then be a practical method to discern those aims and to interpret the symbolic language of the unconscious. It kind of operationalizes process thought and Jungian thought. I, I find that, I think your comment is so helpful. And so what does a practice of, of process thought really look like? And it depends on, you know, I think kindness can be a practice of process thought. Um, public service can be a practice of, of process thought, but there is, what practices help us become individuated? What practices actually help us become whole people? I would like to ask you a question here, though, about the availability of dream work to everybody. You know, in, in my own experience, Sherry, some people are drawn to it and some people are not. Uh, some people can remember their dreams. Some people can't. Uh, so are there, in your view, additional ways, in addition to dream work, by which I could, I could say, Process thought can be practiced at the individuational level, or for that matter, Jungian wisdom can be practiced at the individual level, in addition to dream work. Well, let me let me first back up a second and explain something that's really crucial to, um, to I think, both Jungian, first, certainly Jungian thought, but I think it's also really part of Whitehead as well. Um, that both Whitehead and Jung talked about that there was a source available to us of the dynamism, vitality, and creativity of, in life. And that when we live separate from that source, our lives become dry and brittle and just, just uh, you know, ordered and boring. And, and there's nothing, there's no zest in that. You know, Whitehead talks a lot about this, um, you know, uh, enjoyment, you know, experiencing zest in life and vitality. And so the way Jung said the, the source of that is what he called the primordial mystery at the base of life. It's that flow of life, that primordial energy that is just part of, of, of life. It's just this source of vitality. And so for young, the problem with modern humans is that we have become so rational and so uh, veered toward the conscious mind. And so when we think about our human mind and human capacity, um, and Alan Watts talks a lot about this as well. Um, he talks, I, won't, I can't remember his terms exactly, but there's, there's the consciousness where we can focus our attention that where it becomes like a, like a spotlight on whatever we're looking at. That's conscious attention. When we, when we focus our energy like a spotlight. But then he talked about when we are not in that focused mode, um, we're more like a floodlight, right? Where it's more, and, and our attention is more diffuse. Jung said that, um, talked about that kind of thinking as non-directed thinking. And it was only in non-directed thinking that we could access the images of the unconscious. If we're too focused, we cannot, we don't get those images. So non-directed thinking is what we have to access. Well, how do we access that? So it's kind of similar. There's a brain researcher who's passed away now named Ernest Hartman, but this isn't his term, I don't think, but he talks about the default mode network of the brain. We talked about the spectrum of human consciousness from or attention from waking consciousness to sleep, right? To uh, sleep and dreams. And there's, it's a spectrum. So there's in between levels or layers. And so from if you look at the dream end, so there's nighttime dreams. But then if you come back a little bit toward consciousness, there's reverie, there's fantasy, there's daydreaming. Those are all non-directed thinking. And that's the mode of thinking we need to engage in order to uh, tap into this source of vitality and dynamism. And so dream work is a way to do that. 
often people who say they don't remember their dreams, if they set a conscious intention, if they put the notebook by the bed with the pen and be committed to writing down a dream as soon as they wake up, even in the middle of the night, because within a few seconds, they're gone if we don't have that intention. Sometimes people who say they don't remember their dreams, when they set that intention, they will start to remember them. It's almost as if their psyche sort of says, ooh, ooh, you're paying attention. Here, 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 here. You know, I was in a, I, I've actually been in a, in a stage in the last several years where I've not been remembering that many dreams. Now I did last night, I did write down a dream last night, but I often don't. One reason can also be actually related to adrenal function. If our adrenal glands are kind of over-functioning, that can, that can impact our dream recall. Um, but when we, um, there were times when I was writing down four dreams in a night, they, they were flowing so much. So dreams are one way. Synchronicities are another. So just observing closely, being having kind of a more contemplative view. I, I consider the whole universe as God's mouthpiece. One example I'll give you, um, a real simple example. I was in North Carolina at a music conference. This is a long time ago. Um, at uh, uh, It's called the Swannanoa Gathering. It's held at Warren Wilson College. And at that time, I was going through a lot of uh, emotional upheaval around a, re a relationship that I was in. And I was very sad because it wasn't going in the direction that I wanted it to go, right? And I was very deeply in love with this man. And so I was very sad and I took my journal and I went and sat in a quiet place away from what was happening at the conference. And I was kind of sitting outside of a building, but looking on a kind of little little valley and there was a tree right there. It was just a real, real pretty little spot. And I was just crying and crying because I was so bereft, you know, so heartbroken about this situation. And I remember saying, God, I need a nature moment. And all of a sudden a flock of like a hundred goldfinches flew into that tree and the tree became alive with goldfinches. And I just, that was just the balm for my soul. So when we, when we pay attention and, and don't discount those things, you know, if we look at the universe as having this capacity to connect with us, to connect with our inner worlds in a meaningful way, and we begin to look for those signs, we begin to see them a whole lot more. Um, another quick example, I was at the Noetic Sciences Conference around 95 or 96, and it was a great conference. It was in Boca Raton, Florida. And when I left, when it was over and we were leaving the hotel, you know, three, three of us shared a cab to the airport, right? So we were all, we didn't know each other. We were all in the car telling the driver about this conference we had just experienced. And, and he got into it and was really interested in what all we, we were doing there. And then he told some kind of story, which I don't even remember. And when he finished his story, I said something like, isn't, isn't the universe amazing? And right at that moment, a truck drove by from the audio visual store that used to exist called um, Incredible Universe. And it was just like, yep, yeah, there it is right there. You know, uh, I, what you say also uh, speaks to me and uh, synchronicities do happen all the time. And to keep, keep your eyes open to those, I think is a good practice. I really like your phrase, is it non-directed thinking or non-directional thinking? Non-directed. Non-directed. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I myself do Zen meditation on a regular basis. Um, have been for, for a long, long time. And that is an, an entrance into a kind of non-directed thinking. It's not focused yeah. on problem solving. It's not chasing thoughts. You have thoughts, but you don't chase them. And so uh, something else, other things come up precisely in the, in the activity of non-directed thinking. Yeah. Uh, I teasingly, um, it's a kind of Sabbath from problem solving consciousness, um, which, which so many of us so need. Even yeah. God needs it on the seventh day, I think. I think God entered into non-directed appreciation. <laughs> Of exactly. the splendid nature of the universe. Exactly. But, but, 
Uh, that that reminds me, though, that we live in, as you know, we live in such a troubled time. Yeah. And uh, a lot of us uh, hope for and want to give our lives to something like beloved community. Right? In the process world, we call it ecological civilization. It, it's 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 community that, that happens within the context of a beautiful creation and where we live with respect and care for for the whole of things, but are certainly ourselves, certainly one another. Uh, you, you certainly have persuaded me um, of, of the wisdom of Jung and Whitehead in combination. Um, so many examples, not from you, but from others that I run into in the un in union circles actually, tend to focus on the person and the individual uh, and personal circumstances but we live in a time when we need collective dreams. We need somehow to dream together and dream our way into a way of living with one another in the more than human world uh, that's gentle and creative and kind and just. And I think we're looking for, for such a dream. Do you see Jung and Whitehead uh, individually or together as somehow giving us guidance for collective dreaming toward the common good. Yeah, I, I definitely do. And, and there's, um, you know, there's different ways that that I think is true. One is uh, communal dream work is, is one good example. But even before I get there, I just want to say that when I think, and in, in, even in my own life, what I've seen is that when when, when you start to do these practices like dream work and you begin to find that there's this wisdom that comes, that's available, that comes and works in your life, that you can see possibilities, that you can experience this kind of whole making that's happening. Um, and, when, and when you then can understand that everything in the world has value, has intrinsic value, right? So I talk about those three ideas that are woven into both Whitehead and Jungian thought, value, relationality, and transformation. You know, so many of us have grown up with, with trauma and there's, there's a lot of really uh, eye-opening studies about adverse childhood experience and the effect of trauma on our health and on our well-being. I think, I think we are, and we don't even know it, a nation that is just full of traumatized people. And so when we can begin to glimpse that we are not alone, that we are not disconnected, that we are, uh, and, and, and believe me, I still struggle with this all the time, all the time. It's, it's, you know, it's a struggle that's with us because life is hard. And this, this way that this, this perishing and flux that's built into life it's just really hard on our hearts. And so, but when we begin to see glimpses of the value that everything has, when we see God in everything, when we see the universe as God's mouthpiece, when we see every being as part of this, uh, this whole, while still having value for itself and enjoyment of its own, when we see that connection, and then we see that there are possibilities that arise that no matter what our life has been like, no matter how difficult our childhood was or our present day, no matter what trauma we've experienced as a child or as an adult, there are possibilities for wholeness and healing that are available to us. That changes our view of the world. Now, I wanna talk a little bit about this example of communal dream work and dream sharing groups are something that arose really kind of in the 70s through the work of people like Montague Ullman and Jeremy Taylor and a few others. And Jeremy Taylor were, uh, created a way of working with dreams in groups that he called projective dream work, group dream work. And so that process, what happens in that, in that process is first that it's based on an acknowledgement that anything that I do, any time that I might talk about your dream, I am projecting on your symbols. I am, I can't say what your dream means for you because your symbols are your symbols. Now, the symbols that arise from the unconscious are both collective and personal. So they can be cultural symbols, symbols that are very much part of our cultural milieu, right? 
Um, so in this process of group dream work, the dreamer will bring a dream, tell their dream, usually two or three times. The group members then might ask questions about, well, uh, did you say that that was a tall man in your dream? Is that someone you knew? And then get some clarity around the symbols, but not what their meanings are for the dreamer. And then the dreamer kind of turns over their dream to the group and says, all right, now you all can work with this dream for a while and kind of backs out of the circle. And then the group projects upon the dream. The group members would say, use language like, well, if it were my dream or in my dream, meaning in my version of that dream that I'm in, here's what this means to me. Here's what I might think about. Here's the way that this moves me. And it is astonishing how much I can get out of somebody else's dream that when I go through that process and work with that material for me, then and bring forth how it's changing me and what I'm learning from it, it becomes this holy sacred moment that the entire group is then part of. And over time, usually a dream group will be, you know, the same members will meet regularly for a long period of time. The, the trust that develops in those groups, the intimacy that develops, the bonding that develops, what we learn about each other is so beautiful. It's kind of like, it reminds me of, um, I'm forgetting who, um, I'm forgetting who it was that I quoted in my book about this, talking about how one, one function that church used to serve for, is that it would bring together people from all levels of society, in, you know, from an area in a community into the same church. Now, this is, you know, right now, I mean, our churches are very segregated and they're also maybe, maybe even economically depending on the neighborhood. But in the past, I think there might have been more interplay between people in different roles and functions and levels or economic classes in society. And for that time that we were together in that church, in that worship service, those differentiators went away, right? And we were able to experience um, each other in a way that we could develop respect for each other and, and kind of know that we shared some kind of common values. And that's, that's difficult to find in American culture right now. So anything that helps us come together and share um, what's happening in our inner lives. Also in a group, and they, you know, the church used to call this exhortation when somebody talked about where God was where they saw God. If we had those kinds of stories among ourselves, this is how God was working in my life today. This is the synchronicity that came up for me last week that really helped me. You know, this is the prayer I prayed that really led to some movement in me. Um, that kind of sharing of our of that those that part, that spiritual part of our lives is, I think, how we can develop hope and faith and boost each other up and have community. And so I think that, you know, there's ideas that, so both Young and Whitehead, you know, the, not just the dream work, but the way of looking at the world, the way of understanding the world as being one of value, of belonging, of transformation, uh, I think are very life, these are very life-giving resources for me. And I think they, for others too. Hey, there's a, there's a song by Bob Dylan, uh, and, and the lyric goes something like, um, uh, you can be inside my dream if I can be inside yours. And um, that makes me think of Jesus, actually. Mm. And, and G Jesus had it lived from a dream, uh, and, he, and he called it the kingdom of God. Um, that state of affairs when the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's kind of like beloved community. Yeah, but a lot of times we think of Jesus as having a full-fledged dream, um, and we're to receive it. But but I wonder if if it wasn't an invitation to be inside it, inside his dream, and the other way around, and we help further create it. And if if the inclusion of the more than human world now isn't at least one thing we can, in some ways, add to that dream. Oh yeah, um, add to that dream. Uh, one thing is very clear to me is you have so much to offer. Your ideas are so engaging. And you, Thank you. You're, a, you're a theologian, 
um, in the making. Uh, and you, uh, what a future we have um, with your help. We in the process world, we in the union world, we in the world. So uh, to close things out, uh, where do you see yourself as going? Uh, what most excites you now? In what directions would you like to be moving and taking all this? Um, what is your dream for yourself? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, I've got some plans to, to launch a YouTube channel and do other things like that where I can kind of talk about these ideas, talk about really dream, spirituality, and transformation. I mean, those are my, those are my core loves. And to, to talk about some of these things and introduce some of these ideas to a wider audience, I want to uh, re-edit my book into a more general reader friendly version and you know another thing i just um i think we have gotten such a skewed idea in this culture speaking primarily of the u.s but we don't i don't think we have any uh good idea anymore of what a good life is and so that's i see a future book <laughs> as being about what i think a good life is um and how we can live a good life and have human lives that are that have meaning and value and purpose. Uh, and so that, those, are the, those are the directions I think I see myself moving in. Well, may that come true. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I'm into that. So thank you so much for being with, with me and with us today. Thanks for having me, Jay. I really loved it. Enjoyed, enjoyed talking right. with you. Same here. Yeah. Conversations in Process is a co-production of the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. If you'd like to support this podcast and help us realize our aim to advance wisdom, harmony, and the common good, please consider making a donation by visiting cobb.institute. That's cobb.institute and clicking on the donate button.